0: Hi everyone, and welcome to another episode of Gathering Ground. I'm Mary Morton, president of Morton Group, LLC. Morton Group is a national consulting firm that operates in Chicago and works with clients from coast to coast and everywhere in between. For more information about our work in the areas of organizational development, research, executive placements, diversity, racial equity, and inclusion, please visit us at mortongroup.com. That's M-O-R-T-E-N- dot com. Before we begin today's conversation, I want to take some time to speak to the current events sweeping our nation. It's hard to believe that just a few weeks ago, the news was full of updates and press briefings around the COVID-19 pandemic. Suddenly, and almost overnight, the world turned its eyes to Minneapolis, where George Floyd was murdered. And at this time, The conversation shifted to the pandemic that has been plaguing our communities for centuries. And no longer were we as focused on COVID-19, but we began to look at the pandemic of racism. For the past few weeks, record numbers of people nationwide have been galvanized into action and have pushed back against unrelenting anti-Black and state-inflicted violence. At Morton Group, We maintain that it is the responsibility of all people and all institutions to play a role in ending these inequities by envisioning and creating new systems that are grounded in equity and liberation. Morton Group is doing our part by offering listening sessions to organizations in need of a space for staff to come together to engage in deep listening and to share the emotions that many of us are struggling to hold and navigate at this time. Some of these sessions are being offered pro bono contingent on our availability. For more information on these listening sessions, please go to mortongroup.com. We would love to support you during this critical time. And now we're going to take a turn to our interview for today. Today, we are so pleased to welcome the leaders from two of Chicago's most impactful organizations. We're going to welcome Dory McOrder, Chief Executive Officer of the YWCA of Metropolitan Chicago, and Marcus Schalk, Chief Executive Officer of Thresholds. Dori McOrder became the CEO of the YWCA Metropolitan Chicago in March of 2013. She has embarked upon a journey to transform the 140-year-old social service agency to a 21st century social enterprise. Dory leverages her large scale change experience from working over 20 years in management consulting to the work that the YWCA does to create social change. Dory previously was a partner at Crow Horwath LLP, one of the largest accounting firms in the US, as well as other senior positions with Snap on Incorporated and Booz Allen Hamilton. Dory's background, her educational background, is in business administration from the University of Wisconsin in Madison. She has an MBA from Northwestern and an honorary doctorate from Lake Forest College. Marcus Shaw has dedicated his career to advocating for the rights of stigmatized and vulnerable people. As the CEO of Thresholds, Mark has overseen explosive growth and also a culture shift that embraces change, innovation, transparency, and love. Yes, love. We're going to talk about love over the next hour. Prior to Thresholds, Mark worked as a leader in the fight against HIV and AIDS as the CEO of the AIDS Foundation of Chicago. Like Dory, Mark also has degrees from Northwestern. His master's degree is in political science from Northwestern, and his undergrad degree is from the University of Notre Dame. So Dory and Mark, so excited to have you here at Gathering Ground. Thanks so much for joining me.
1: It's great to be here.
0: Thanks for having us. Okay, so we have a lot to talk about. We only have about an hour. (laughs) And so um, one of the things we like to do here on Gathering Ground is to start by asking you to give us some sense of your journey, right? How did you get, Dory in your case, to uh, the CEO position of the why? Why is the why's work? And many of the things I see you talk about with regard to uh, possibilities. Why is that and why is that theme very important to you?
2: Sure. Well, thank you, Mary, for asking. So first thing, I won't bore people with my accounting background because (laughs) the the listeners would definitely be asleep on that. But secondly, because it is more than just about a career move for me, people often ask me why I switched um, into the nonprofit space. And I have to make the point that it's not about being in nonprofit or private sector for me. It's just about the work of the YWCA. And for, for, Personally, you know, with our mission to eliminate racism and empower women, I was attracted to the organization because of our mission. Mission, but more importantly, um, for me, I just am so reminded of every day that we do our work. That that, as I look at our members, as our, our look at our different um, clients, and I see so much of of my journey from a life perspective within them, and really think about what's possible for them. And that's what gets me so excited and going because my mom had us as early age. So, um, you know, one would think that because she was, she started as a teen mom, that our trajectory would be so different, but it, it it has been one full of hope and possibility it has been one that she recognized the opportunity to to get us into head start which until i was an adult that i recognized that head start was a program i just was like i was in i started school at three so there you know and so I was watching sort of my mom's journey and understanding it now through my adult lens has absolutely motivated me and excited me around what else is possible you know the the fact that we 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 label people with statistics all the time about what they can and cannot do because of whatever experience they've had in life. And for me, at being at the YWCA, it's been just a, another example of of one way that's possible. But who knows what else is is out there for people? So I just get so motivated by saying yes. I was able to you know go through this um, management consulting professional you know a career in accounting, and at the same time recognize that there's so many opportunities that I think are available for people, but how do I in assist in being able to remove those barriers as well as support them in their own journeys? And so to me, that's what it's about. It's not just about another job. <laughs> and it's not about like, cause why would this work is so hard. <laughs> so, so it's much harder than doing accounting, trust me. And so I just think from my perspective, it's really been about how can I just participate and support and, and really engage in human services that, to me, are ultimately the, the, um, the most important work. Not even important. It's not about of importance as much as it's, 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 to me, just what I want to do, right? so
0: Well, I appreciate that. And the distinction around, it wasn't that I, you decided to change industries, per se. It was the position. It was the actual, right, role that was, attracted you to it. And as it turned out, it was a nonprofit. It was a large nonprofit. And so it meant that you were going to, in fact, leave um, for-profit work to come into the nonprofit community.
2: That's Absolutely. Wonderful. Better said than I, Mary, that you, your explanation <laughs> of my career path was way better explained than I did. So thank you for that. Okay, Mark, let's hear about your career path,
0: which I, I know a little bit more about, but... but uh, yeah, I
1: mean, that's because we go back 30 years. Um, <laughs> he likes
0: to say that. I don't believe, I love it. To I don't say believe that number at all. It makes
1: me feel both old and young at the same time. <laughs> uh, so uh, oh, I want to thank Dory. I mean, just being on the show with her is like the biggest treat, uh, really. I was able to do something with her last, last year. It feels like years and years ago now because of COVID. Uh, but being back together with her and with you, Mary, is a, such a joy and a privilege. And I wanna thank Dory for mentioning her mom. So I get to talk about my mom for one second too, because I really like give her so much credit for the path and the journey that I'm still on. Uh, I grew up in a place called Marquette Park and for Chicago listeners that means something. And for African-American listeners, it means a lot too, uh, maybe even more. Um, A really segregated white bungalow belt neighborhood on the Southwest side of Chicago that Martin Luther King Junior said was one of the scariest places on earth. Um, And my mom was an organizer against redlining back in the 70s with an organization that preceded SWAP called the Southwest Neighborhood Parish Federation. So I feel like I got a start in doing good uh, at a very early age, and I just feel really privileged by that. But unlike Dory, my whole career has been in nonprofit uh, when I started in the nonprofit sector 35 years ago. Uh, my first job was at the Pikes Peak Justice and Peace Commission, what a name, in Colorado Springs. And then, you know, I ended up at the AIDS Foundation of Chicago 30 years ago, uh, where I was for 20 years and and really helped uh, create, I think, a, uh, a movement, uh, uh, an AIDS prevention care and treatment movement in Chicago. Um, and, did that for 20 fantastic years and and then about eight years ago i nine years ago almost i i found thresholds and they found me and uh i didn't have any i didn't even actually know what thresholds was uh when we found each other but you know what when you end up in the place exactly where you're supposed to be uh there's nothing better i uh, i feel like i was led to thresholds i lost a brother at 29, to mental illness and substance abuse, uh, he died alone in a bathtub with a a quart of vodka. I think in the bathtub with him. Um, and I always think that if we had had resources and we had had better knowledge and um, and there were places that could treat people with dual diagnosis, that he might be with us today. Uh, so I'm exactly where I need to be, and uh, it's so hard to believe that I've been working 35 years nonstop in the nonprofit sector. But like Dory, I don't think of this as profit or nonprofit. profit I think of it as, uh, a, a, and especially thresholds, a $90 million organization with 1,300 employees in 90 sites. Uh, we're bigger than many for-profit businesses, but it's not the for-profit status or not-for-profit status that makes us who we are. It's that we have 1,300 people doing amazing work and providing home health and hope for thousands and creating... Uh, opportunity for thousands more. And, um, and that's the difference. It's really about making a social impact, however you do it. If you're making a social impact and doing good and doing well, and that's what I'm blessed uh, to be able to do every day of my life.
0: Wonderful. Well, thank you so much. The, the next thing I want to just talk to you about before we talk a little bit more about your individual organizations is we're at a particular moment in history in this country. And uh, I think we would be remiss if we did not uh, comment on, on, that, uh, on the period that we're in right now. And I would love to hear um, from you, Dory, just what this time has meant to you, what it's been like. Um, I know certainly leading the why, um, where your tagline is eliminating racism and empowering women, um, that can mean a variety of different things. And so I'm curious about both the personal and, and the professional.
2: Sure. You know, it's, it's one of those things where I just feel um, blessed to be here during this moment, quite frankly, because if the moment was going to happen, I'm, I'm glad that I'm here. Um, which the moment, um, you know, the, the fact that we're dealing with a pandemic that I think was already um, shedding light on the importance of our mission um, in terms of how the, the pandemic was um, having disproportionate impacts across um, the communities that we serve. Um, and then to layer on that, then the, the economic downturn and now to layer on the civil unrest. It just so shows you why, you know, particularly for the work that we do, one, how important it is. But two, it gives us sort of a, a permission and a new landscape to say, hey, we need mm-hmm. to be aggressive around the work that we're doing and how we move forward um, to create a new reality for, for we were already on the way to a new reality being created. Um. just because the way the cards were shaking out. But now it's like, wait a minute, we have to be able to engage and make sure that the communities that we are serving um, end up in a better position. And we have the tools to do that. I feel like we have even more support now than we've ever had before, because people are realizing and recognizing that, that oh, we we understand why you have a mission that says eliminate racism power women not or for first of all it's not know most a lot of people acted like we could choose like one or the other and relative to the strategies that we've been doing whether it's the fact that we operate you know a small business development center on the south side and that we also are you know running the rape crisis lines people really start to understand the connectivity of all of our work better which had not necessarily um, I think, been done before, no matter how much we articulated, I don't think people heard it. But now I think people really understand that. And I think that that's important for us. And, you know, I'm I'm, I'm happy to be a Black woman at the helm of this organization at this time, because I do think I can bring a perspective and um, in terms of how we continue to move forward and address these issues on so many different levels. So, um, you know, one of my friends Howie says that sort of chaos is the playground for, for creativity. And I think that that's the space we're sitting in right now as we look to move forward in different ways, because we have to.
0: That's right. That's right. We, we, we don't have any other choice. Mark, what's it been like for you uh, again, personally and, and professionally in your organization?
1: Yeah. I mean the last couple of months and really the last couple of weeks, I mean, who would have ever thought, right. That we would be, dealing with twin pandemics, uh, one really recent of the last half year maybe, and another going back 400 years that reared its ugly, racist, vile head at exactly at our weakest uh, moment in, in my lifetime. Um, you know, for me, what the twin pandemics have done is sort of bring into sharp relief uh, everything that is right with this world, uh, everything that is terribly, terribly wrong with this world uh, and how we have to act with this fierce urgency of now. To Dory's point, uh, we can't go back. Uh, It would be foolish to go back. Uh, I refuse to go back uh, in either how we address healthcare and mental healthcare and how we address structural racism. So I started out by saying what's right with the world. uh, And it's hard probably you know, for listeners to say, well, how could he be talking about twin pandemics and then say what's right with the world? But I have to say, um, in both instances, when COVID struck, um, threshold stepped up and my staff showed up. And what is right with the world are the millions of people, including in Chicago, that have stepped up to support us, to support each other, to donate food, to donate time, to do to make masks. Um, To turn alcohol into hand sanitizer, to give art supplies to people that would not have had art therapy without it, to Tom Tunney from Ann Sathers, who's still delivering food uh, to Buffett Place in in Lakeview. I mean, that is what's right with the world. And what's wrong with the world was exposed by these two epidemics, too that greed uh, and bad politics are driving uh, disease and structural racism. Um, The people who are dying of COVID and dying from structural racism, African-Americans, Latinos, poor people, uh, this ep- these epidemics are, are hurting the very most vulnerable people in our communities. And that's what we have to change. Um, and we're doing it now. And, and the same with, um, really quickly on, you know, how we're gonna be addressing structural racism. It has also uh, forced all of us and me to, uh, as a very white man, Uh, but a very strong ally. I hope that I have been and will continue to be to you and to so many others. Uh, Everything that I need to do as a leader to step up and show up uh, for my staff of color, for my members of color, and for communities of color, especially the black community. And that means reassessing everything that we're doing at Thresholds, making sure that all of our policy work, which is really important. Our policy work today is already addressing, I would think structural racism by providing, housing and healthcare and mental health care and keeping people out of jail and institutions that is fighting structural racism, but making sure that as we move forward, that we do it with a racial justice and equity lens. Absolutely. That that's going to be overlaid and embedded in everything that we do going forward. So I don't talk about silver linings when people die, when people are infected, when millions of people are losing their jobs, it's hard to talk about silver linings. But I do think about to Dory again, possibilities and opportunity, uh, and we are going to seize the moment and make sure that the moment becomes a movement. Because if it's a moment that ends, we're what's the word? Screwed. Yes. <laughs> right? Yeah, that's that's
0: that that says it so all. That's, right. We, that's are, right.
1: we have to make sure that the moment is a movement.
0: And and why do you think? I was asked this question actually on a panel yesterday, so I thought I'm going to ask this question of you today. Uh-uh. Why? <laughs> why do you think it's happened now why do you think it's at this moment that there that we see a movement um building and and how do we not lose the momentum you both have talked about not going back right that this is our new normal this is how it's going to be um and that's in many different areas whether it's regard with regard to how we have to move in the world uh, because we still need to be on some sort of restriction. We can't just gather freely and without any limits on the number of people. And that's going to be that way for a while. To the fact that we have people marching in support of what's happened in this country all over the world. It's a global movement. It's totally. And, and, and why do you think this moment has happened as opposed to it happening when you know, Black Lives Matter started in 2013 with, when Trayvon Martin was killed? And um, as I'm sure many of you remember, it was, well, what does this mean? Why are you singling out Black people? You don't care about other people. Never understanding that it was Black Lives Matter too. Black Lives Matter have to be called out because no one is lifting up the fact that Black people are being killed. Um, And so why do you think it happened in this moment? I just want to go through, talk a little bit about this before we move on to another
2: topic, Dory. You know, I think think it's several things. I think, one, the fact that people are at home. And I always say this, that I feel like we're always competing with Mindshare to get people to focus on our issue. And I think because literally you had an opportunity, one, video always helps. Two, that people, because they're not necessarily able to be distracted by so many other things, they can't run here, they can't go there, they can't go there. And so I think that being in a space that allowed people to actually process and be with the fact that you just watch somebody kill somebody, right? Like, and and I think that that really sunk in for people. And I think that too, that COVID and the sort of empathy um, muscle got a little expressed during the COVID time. So I think people were already empathetic, understanding um, how their uh, neighbors are having a different experiences, how their essential workers are having a different experience as they, and they are. So I do feel to some degree COVID, Almost laid a better foundation for at least understanding um, people's situations and expressing a little more empathy. And then once you then see this 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 tragic um, murder that you witness, and I think I, I think it finally just sunk in for people. Um, and this notion that we're all in this together during the the pandemic, but yet we can't. We all live together, but we can't be in this together when we witness someone take out another. Um, a uh, uh, american why would that be any different than what's happening um in terms of as mark described witnessing sort of these two pandemics at the same time and so that's my that's my theory of course <laughs> i'm sure mark can add um his opinion to that as well but i just think the mind share was available and the the empathy the heart was open
1: yeah no you said it so absolutely perfectly i'm not sure what i can add i think the only thing that i would add is that. I just think like millions of us have we just said enough is enough. I mean, like uh I can't take it anymore. I don't know where that comes from, probably some movie, but like I cannot take this crap another day. Um, you know, years now, and especially the last 3 years without getting political or partisan. The last 3 years, the the rhetoric of hate and the rhetoric of uh, division and um yeah, and the political discourse that um like dissed and diminished the sum of us uh really not just african americans and latinos but gays and women i mean literally the discourse has diminished or tried to diminish the sum of us and i think all of that just was enough was enough and then all the situations like primed for the moment like dory expressed being at home but you know i you know, and I'm also grateful, so grateful uh, to the millennials and whatever the younger generation is, Z or millennial plus, <laughs> I mean, you know, who have also just been pushing and pushing and pushing and saying that these systems are broken, these structures, the economic structures, the political structures, the racial structures, um, and it just feels like we reached a tipping point. Um, and the fact that it was caught on video that literally took people's breaths away. Um, So, yeah, I
0: mean. I agree, I think think it is the convergence of all of that, absolutely. You know, one of the reasons why I initially asked you both on together was because I think I saw the um, presentation or I knew that you did a presentation at Axis and I think it was the same day I was doing a presentation and I, I couldn't watch yours. However, for some reason, I thought you all had taken that road on the show, uh, on the show on the road. <laughs> you had taken that show on the road. I thought you were doing this presentation all over the place.
1: Good.
0: I texted Mark last week and said, what's the name of that presentation? <laughs> he, said he couldn't remember. Um, so what, let's talk a little bit about leadership and your leadership styles and what's been important to you, at leaders. Um, yeah, let's, let's start there. Let's talk about your leadership style. How would you describe your leadership style, Dory.
2: Sure, you know I I, I would say that um, highly authentic. I I'm I'm no Holly Berry. I cannot act <laughs> worth a darn. And so my style, and and I think more leaders are acknowledging this now, particularly because again, COVID um, really required so many leaders to express the the humanity in themselves a lot more. And I think that that's where I've always started, that I recognize that I, I just need to show up as who I am. And being a leader, I think it's important for me to do that. And by doing so, I hope to invite the authenticity authenticity in others to show up as well, because that's where we then create opportunities for us to really connect and what's meaningful for all of us. And so for me, if I could lead from like, this is who I am, this is what I'm bringing to the table. This is how I'm gonna approach things. This is my philosophies, and I literally put all that on the table. And you know, I think people have a choice. They choose you as a leader too. So mm-hmm. when you when you show up as being who you are, um, with with you know no filter, <laughs> particularly on Zoom, there's been no filter. So no makeup, no filters, no nothing. So when you show up in all of that full authenticity, authenticity, people have an opportunity to choose if they want to be a part of what you're offering.
0: I love that. Um, when you, when you talk about showing up in your full authentic self, were you, did you think you were able to do that in the beginning of your career or did you grow to that?
2: You know, it's interesting. Um, I think that I always maintain a bit of that authenticity along the way. And I'll tell you, it's, it really, I, you know, as i mentioned my mom earlier but i also speak to my father in that he was so you know humble and just kept this level of humility about him and also instilled that in me so he would say you know um no one is better than you but then you're no better than anybody and what i loved about that is that so when i would be at tables particularly starting my, my, my life and professional services where it really you know you know, particularly in a, a, starting at large accounting firms back in the day that I started 20 plus years ago, it was a real white male dominated space. And I couldn't, I didn't know how to be anything other than me. So I somewhat had to show up. I learned the rules of the road, but I also showed up as me. And I actually credit that to how I was able to sort of navigate because a lot of people didn't know what to do with me. <laughs> and so um, for, so from my perspective, that was my choice, you know, to understand my environment and to show up as full of fully as I can as myself, because I really didn't know another way. And then my father, I think, gave me permission to do that, as long as I understood, you know, what I could bring to the table and to show up with that.
0: Mm -hmm. And Mark, how how are you showing up at work? And has there been a difference along the along the road?
1: Yeah, I I wish I could say that I have evolved or uh, that there's been differences over the last 57 years. But uh, I am who I am. I don't know. That's another like, Popeye thing or something Um, but yeah I too have just brought I have tried to bring my authentic real self to everything I've done my whole life and especially in my professional life I I'm not good at uh, separating the personal and the professional I mean of course I I know the boundaries and I I don't bother people at work with my personal woes and problems but but my person and my personality and my professional personality they really are the same. So for better or for worse, at Thresholds and at the AIDS Foundation and before then, the board members and the staff members and the clients and my community partners, they what they see is what they get. And I, that's just it, for better or for worse. And I always wanna be better. I mean, every day I'm trying to be a better man and a better leader, uh, but I am who I am. And I have a board member that said a couple of years ago, uh, she wants to play poker with me. And it took me about five seconds to realize that's because she would win, like immediately. Oh, absolutely. Right, you know me, Mary. I don't have a poker face. I, my face is my face. If I'm happy, <laughs> you see my happiness. If I'm sad or frustrated, I share that. So yeah, so I would be a fantastic poker player for any of you that know how to play poker. Um, you know, and in addition, uh, sort of my um, mini claim to fame uh, over the last four or so years Uh, has been my mantra about leading with love. Yes. I actually made a decision when I joined Thresholds almost nine years ago that I was gonna lead this complex organization with love, love for the uh, staff, love for the client, love for the mission, uh, and sort of, you know, broadly love for the community um, and love for this world that I felt needed uh, more love. But, you know, specifically my leading with love talk, which I did like four years ago now, I actually started writing that uh, the day after the last uh, presidential election. So I woke up the next day very distressed and saying, like, are we going to be in a period of hate? Um, uh, And I started thinking, you know, I can't uh, lead or live with hate. I have to live and lead with love. And then I sat down and I started writing. And that's how I ended up writing this Ted-like talk uh, called Leading with Love in the Workplace. So that's that in a nutshell is sort of my leadership. Uh, If I had to pick one word for how I lead or maybe two words with love.
0: And so when you did a session together, what did you talk about?
2: (laughs) Yeah, It's interesting. I do want to add to to what Mark said, because part of it. So so what? So essentially it was a love fest. That's what the session was about, quite (laughs) frankly. Um, And what in a recognition that that Mark and I share very um, share. Core philosophies that actually manifest in our leadership, I think, is part of that. Because what had evolved for me is, I do think I showed up very early, even in very um, highly, very, you know, conservative corporate environments, how I was able to show up authentically. Um, I think what happened though, is the narrative of how I was able to do that has actually evolved, or at least I have a better understanding of it now, that what changed for me is not that I had to show up differently or got the confidence to show up differently, which I think is what people expect, um, to show up more fully, I I guess, have that confidence to do that. But for me, what, what happened is that as I looked back and understood what I was doing more, it was that I was able to finally say being a leader, that it is my responsibility to create environments where people can also show up. And I don't know that I embraced that narrative early. I just kind of did my thing and sort of let the world fall around me. But as I grew in my own um, leadership journey, what I became more committed to is not just making sure that I could show up authentically, but creating environments where others could show up authentically as well. So to the point where we now say at the YWCA that we we talk about our, um, our role as leaders and and sort of employment brand that we want is what we say possibility partners unleashing purpose and potential and what that is about for us is that we say that we need to create an inclusive environment where everyone can thrive regardless of how they identify and for us that's really important because as mark described to me that fundamentally is based in love and not Um, not this notion of fear, it is based on what's possible when people can fully show up bringing all they are to this space that we call work during this specific time as we share sort of this mutual goal to make society better. And I just think that that's so important because as leaders we have such a responsibility because we own the environment, no one else does. And we own the culture and it's important for us to create that culture and that environment for people to truly Um, show up. And I I feel it's our our responsibility too, because people spend so many life hours at work and work literally breaks people down and tear people down, or it can build people up and leave them something to go home to happy in a happier state. And I just think that that's just too much responsibility for me not to um, take that seriously as well.
0: No, I, I appreciate that. And, and I often ask who came up with this formula for work. Most of our time at work, just two days off. I don't, I don't know where that came from. There is something fundamentally wrong that we spend most of our time in our work world, whatever that that's going to be. And so why not make it pleasant? I mean, it's the same thing that I I think about with my team that I'm building the company that I, I always wanted to work at, right? And so when people talk about the culture and I'll say, you know, I had nothing to do with it. And they will say, but it came from somewhere. It came from somewhere, and somebody said that interacting like this, you know, caring about who we are sitting next to or talking to on a screen um, outside of work-related matters and really just caring about people as human beings, it makes a difference in terms of how people uh, do their work, feel about their work, and how accountable they are to each other at the end of the day. What have you found uh, in terms of leading with love, Mark, and, and people – you know, really, really trying to hold on to that because I can see how people would think leading with love. Yeah.
1: Really? Okay. Come on now.
0: Come on, Mark. I mean, I don't know what, you know, but it's like, oh, because yeah. I am not, I'll just say I am not the, I'm actually very sentimental, <laughs> but I don't try to show it a lot because I will start crying at the drop of a hat, but I, most people don't know that. Um, and so I'm always a little bit shy around the um, what we will say at the end of a training, the you know the the fuzzy, the warm and fuzzy piece, and they'll look at me and say, "Mary, we need
1: to do this to close out the training."
0: I'm like, I understand, <laughs> I get that. Um, so, so well, how people so come to this? Here? Here's why
1: I sort of bring love to the workplace, right? So, I'm I'm very privileged. I didn't grow up with any money, but I grew up really privileged in a great home, little great little bungalow with loving parents and loving grandparents. So you know i've just been um i've been loved all my life so i just have that enormous privilege of that is my blessing um but then we're taught right we're taught in school we're taught well not i'm not sure in school anymore but taught in church and in temple and synagogue um and and everywhere like you know to love love your mother and father and love your partner and love your neighbor as yourself and so there's this whole emphasis on love at home and in the community. And I think how could you do all that love at home and in the community mm. and then like go to work at eight o'clock and then it's not present. You know, it's like that Dory's point about authentic self. Like you're supposed to shut off sort of love and kindness and empathy and, and the golden rule and all this stuff just because you walk in a door that somebody says now is your place of employment. It's just, to me, it's absolutely ridiculous. But I want to be really clear here. I didn't bring love to thresholds. Uh, I brought myself to thresholds. I got there at 52 years and it's amazing history. Uh, A place filled with love and people who love so deeply. Uh, You couldn't serve a very hard to serve population that most people don't want to frankly serve. Uh, Most people would rather have people that are living with serious mental illnesses and uh, drug substance use challenges and long histories of homelessness and incarceration. A lot of people would rather just have these people invisible or incarcerated or institutionalized somehow, but not the people at thresholds, like their deep core of love for both the individuals as individuals, but really for, I would say, humanity uh, is sort of what drives the place and I think makes it so successful. So again, I was just lucky or blessed or whatever the word is, that I was able to land at a place that allowed me a guy who wants to lead with love at a place that is filled with love. So that was just sort of this great sort of combo. Uh, And the other thing I want to add too is like, you know, um, and this might be like cliche or overused too, but I have also probably since in my early 20s, just been like a student of and a big proponent of servant leadership. Uh, And I know some people don't like that term, especially for people who have had to serve in some way uh or others who feel like if they are servant uh or project serving uh that it somehow diminishes power. Um and for me like the idea of serving and being a servant uh to those who need us the most that to me feels like the greatest privilege. I mean I tell my staff all the time that like I'm actually I'm there to serve them. I don't serve clients. I love our clients and I love our members and will do anything to make sure they get what they need, but my job is to serve my 1,300 staff to make sure that they have the support and the resources and the financing and the programming and the and the management so that they can succeed. Um, you know, and I one of my heroes from way back was a woman named Dorothy Day. She was one of the founders of the Catholic Worker Movement, and I I read about her. I fell in love with her when I was a junior or senior at Notre Dame. Um, and it really just instilled with me uh, this uh, like sort of deep-seated commitment to no matter what I do and no matter how I lead, I'm going to do it uh, as, a, as a servant um, to, to, to others. Mm-hmm. Oh,
0: I am very familiar with Dorothy Day. Being, uh, <laughs> I grew up Catholic, Catholic uh, kindergarten, Catholic <laughs> grammar school, Catholic high school, and loyal. Oh.
1: Oh I my the God, whole tour. you're
0: so much more Catholic than I am. You know? <laughs> oh yeah, I'm pretty, <laughs> yes, yes, I did the whole tour. Um, <laughs> so so tell me this, um, what do you wish you, what do you know now that you wish you had known when you were new to leadership positions? Dory or Mark, whoever'd like to start.
2: Yeah, I just think that, as I mentioned, sort of just grown in this appreciation of workplace Simply being just a place to organize people. We talk about all these other structures that we're organized in at younger ages, right? We have our schools and we have our churches. We have our families. We just have all these spaces that are sort of used to organize people and um, and support support the culture, right? I feel like that workplace. I have this appreciation that it also has a role in how we support people and contribute to society and culture. And I just think that that, I didn't have that appreciation earlier. And I think the difference that it would have made, I've always had sort of, whether we call it you know, servant leadership or human-centered approach, I've always had that because being in the management consulting spaces, to me, those are human capital-intensive businesses. And whenever you have those type of human capital-intensive businesses, like I think human services is as well, you have an appreciation for the people doing the work. But really framing it now, like I do, I just think that I would have, you know, pushed for more policies that were um, probably more human-centered, right? Because I felt like in my earlier age, or, you know, it was about getting the work done. And I got the work done and absolutely respected the people in doing so. But I think, wow, look how many lives I've touched over the years that had I sort of understood just what work And I put the air quotes around just what work is. It really is an opportunity to interact and impact another human's life. I would have treated those moments differently to some degree. And now I see that I have this moment and my team is probably like, we don't want you in our lives anymore than you need to be. But I do just, I just have such an appreciation, a deep appreciation with the opportunity that work gives us. It, It gives us a different set of uh, sort of people that we may have never interacted with in our lives, right? It's not who we live by, it's not who we go to church or who we went to school with. It's typically a more diverse set of people than we would have ever interacted with in any other pathway or any other channel. So now I see work as another channel to um, express humanity, right, and to be a part of that. And so for me, the 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 fact that I get to work with people that I actually love and that I want to spend time with, and this you know this environment is making me miss them so dearly. But to me, this just whole, you know, what I know now is just that work is just another way to organize humanity. And how do we leverage this platform we call work to impact lives on a daily basis? And that's something I didn't appreciate as much as I appreciate that now.
0: Great. I love that. What about you, Mark? What do you, what do you know now that you wish you had known when you were new to leadership, mm-hmm. leadership positions?
1: Yeah so I started my first CEO job like 23 years ago when I became I think I was 33 or 34 and the, became the CEO of the AIDS Foundation of Chicago. Uh I was so lucky to have had such a great mentor that gave me the uh the both the skills and the confidence to be able to lead that organization at that particular moment. But I I wish, you know, of course looking back that I had uh that I had better skills and patience uh for others and patience for myself, I wish that I had learned how to meditate uh, at 33 instead of like 53. I wish I would have learned some more Eastern philosophies and breathing techniques, um, you know, and uh, and beating myself up a little bit less as a as a young leader, you know, out of insecurities or fears of not being as good as my predecessor or as smart as other people, and um, you know, just uh, so that, that is uh, my, my advice to all the young leaders. I mean, if I could, and I am actually mentoring some young leaders in their 30s now, uh, is, um, is really focusing on uh, patient, self-patient, self-care. Uh, and, uh, and sort of one day at a time, you, you want to do it all when you're 33, and you can't do it all, but you think you can do it all. Uh, and, and expectations, I think you often are higher on yourself. That doesn't mean that I wasn't or am not, or don't encourage people to be absolutely driven uh, and results oriented and have huge, huge impact and make a huge difference. Um, but, um, but I really love being 57. I am so grateful uh, that at 57, I, uh, I sometimes feel like I have the energy of a 37 year old, uh, but the wisdom of uh, somebody that has just through life experience, uh, learned how to breathe.
0: Well, you know, along those lines, something that often comes up uh, when we, as you know, we, we do executive searches at Morton Group, and I'll, I'll just go ahead and plug that uh, we're doing the forefront <laughs> that we we're excited about, and, and both Dory and Mark are on the board. And, and let me just say, we've been talking about doing this for a long time. It just so happened that it worked out now. Um, but something that's come up, and, and I, you know, we want to talk a little bit more about this, um, in in all of our executive searches but what do you think about the term emotional intelligence and how important do you think that is when you're thinking of a ceo a president of of an organization How, how first of all how would you define it and then how important do you think it is
1: yeah i mean i think it's just the utmost importance i don't know that i have a really good definition of it uh but for me it's uh you know, I think about it, it's like being aware of and, and being in control as much as possible, and the ability to express emotions, Uh, right? Understanding, like awareness, control and expression of those emotions. And, and it's a lot, I mean, emotions include, right? Anger and fear and happiness. It's not, you know, emotional intelligence is not about being optimistic. It's not about being happy and always smiling. It's not about, uh, you know, being agreeable. I mean, all things that I want to aspire to. And I think that I I hopefully am optimistic and happy and all those things. But to me, that's not emotional intelligence. It's really the awareness of all of these emotions in yourself and an awareness of emotions in other people, in people that you work with and that you supervise that are your co-board members and community members and how you um, and how you handle those in those important interpersonal relationships with empathy and, and really judiciously. Um, to me, that's sort of what emotional intelligence is all about, and it's a compliment. It's not uh, either or. Uh, intelligence, like real, just regular intelligence, whatever that's called, IQ, uh, I think is really important and having skills and knowing you know, how to make decisions uh, that are informed by science and data. But all of that, if you can't read a room, if you can't sort of feel uh <laughs> what people are feeling when they're not talking to you, when they're not expressing themselves other than putting their arms tight around their chest as they're speaking, or talking on the telephone or whatever we call it on our on our our smartphones when uh, when you're trying to have a conversation with them and Um, and just or just looking in their eyes now we can't look at people's rest of their face as much anymore but you can still see a lot in how people are communicating through their eyes so I, I just think it's so important I think it's sometimes undervalued I think smarts are smarts but emotional smarts I think are what differentiate good leaders from great leaders and even successful from unsuccessful ones but of course then you have to determine how you define success right uh, and you know of course i define it in the ways that we've been talking about for 40 minutes uh, right. love and community and service and and impact and i think all of those things are impacted by a wonderful combination of emotional intelligence and and overall intelligence and street intelligence etc
0: and you don't get that by a college degree I, I, I don't think that is that that's going to help you necessarily that is one does not mean the other. Um, there are many, many reasons why one would want to have a college degree and why that's important in the world of work, et cetera but Dory, what is your take on that?
2: No, I think from a definition perspective, um, you know Mark got it in there, but I, I think at the same time when we first as we continue to hear about emotional intelligence and just recognize again, I think it's 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 finally giving um, some type of value to the fact that it takes more than just pure smarts or intellect to um, lead an organization. That again, it's just another way, because it's too much to say that, you know, um, that, that people are, are emotional beings. And so uh, we're going to label it intelligence. So at least it's still connected to smarts, right? (laughs) Versus just saying that, that emotional intelligence is a part of, of being a human being. And that's how we show up in the world. And that's how it is important to make sure that when we are interacting with someone that we are aware of the headspace that they may be in at that time, or aware of your own headspace as you're, as you're leading them as well. And we have to recognize that, as Mark described earlier too, as humans, we have a lot of things that are happening in our lives, and then we come to work. And those things don't disappear. And so how do we then give us permission to um, be in full, sort of full humanity at work and then we now label it an intelligence when re- leaders understand that people are in full humanity at work um, as well. So I just think it's interesting that, you know, I always feel like we have to label it the closer and closer we get to recognizing that, that we're humans and that we're not machines and that we get things done by leveraging those unique aspects of us, like the fact that we have access to a full range of emotions and some of those emotions show up at different times and drive us to do different things and all of that. But I just, um, I think it's important because people aren't machines. And as leaders, we have to recognize that there's different, triggers for people, there's different motivating factors for people, there's different incentives for people. And the more we you know, sort of describe what that is and give people frame, frames and tools to um, have the permission they need to use those type of things and understand that, I think we're better off. But and absolutely, leaders just need to, to embrace all of that. And particularly when they're dealing with people, they need to embrace all of that.
1: Especially in times of, uh, of stress and uh and uncertainty and fear. So, you know, a couple of weeks ago when Chicago was um, experiencing the riots and the unrest, I went to bed Saturday night so distressed. I could, I really, I don't know if I slept Saturday night. Uh, and I woke up Sunday morning uh, even more distressed, probably because I didn't sleep and, and, and so sad. And wh- what, I, what I did, it took me, I don't know, 13 or 14 hours from the time I made my first phone call to the made I Last, I called every single African-American leader at thresholds, basically everybody with uh, a title of assistant director or above, just because I have, you know, I have 500, 600 uh, African-American staff. Of course, I communicated with everybody, the whole organization, by email earlier. But I, I made a decision Sunday morning that I was going to call and talk to every single black leader at thresholds. I was gonna call them on their cell phones and bother them on a Sunday to only tell them that I love them. That's how I started out the calls. I love you. I am here for you. I wanna know what I can do for you. And then I'm just gonna listen. And I have no idea. Like, like the decision to do that, was that an intellectual decision? Was that an emotional intelligence decision? Um, like my gut and my heart just told me like at that particular moment, that's what I needed to do. I didn't know, I don't know if it was the right thing or the wrong thing, but for me, it was what I needed to do to be present with what I thought people needed at that moment. And,
0: and I think if you are, whatever you're doing, if it's from the heart, I, I guess I feel like it can't be wrong. It really can't be wrong, really. And, I, and I, I, I would think people absolutely appreciated that. Believe it or not, and I haven't even taken a break. We are, it, it is time
2: for no.
0: questions. <laughs> already
2: already can't be over
0: i know i know i'm telling you it goes so fast and we there's much more i could talk to you all about um but but let's start with um a couple of our listener questions this is actually a um a favorite part of the podcast so here's the first one what are some of the best ways to transition into leadership i've been working at the coordinator and assistant levels for almost 10 years and want to take the next step in my career what would you
1: tell them? I think Dory should start out. She's a uh, she's the master of this. <laughs> well,
2: no, I, you know it's interesting. I do think that you know there's leadership in title and there's leadership in function in terms absolutely. of how perform. And I really think it's important that you know you can't guarantee what the title is going to come going to come, but you could absolutely guarantee how you show up in different roles and and express leadership. And it doesn't have to be about who's reporting to you. It has to be about how you take charge, how you um, decide to move to move something forward or solve a problem or really engage with people and then support others around you. So, you know, sometimes it's about the title um, because there's folks that have leadership titles that are still not leaders. But I think that we have to um, sort of separate the title from how you show up. And I think mm-hmm. it's showing up and, and demonstrating that leadership gives you an opportunity to then Um, step into those titles when they become available or seek out those titles, but then be able to point to examples where you still have demonstrated that leadership. I like it. Okay. Mark.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, my philosophy too, is that everybody leads. It doesn't matter what position you have in your organization. If you are the front desk clerk or you're working in the mail room, or you're the senior vice president for clinical services or the CEO, uh, you have to lead uh, and you have to take command of your uh, set of responsibilities, um, you know. I mean, and I think it's incumbent upon us as uh, as leaders and organizations to to always be uh, on the lookout for high potential talent uh, to make sure that people both have the skills and the opportunities to do their particular job, which we all need to get done. Right? Everybody needs people in those jobs. That's what you need to get the done. Uh, but as they're growing and wanting learn more skills. Uh, that they both have the opportunity to learn more and that they're mentored and coached to do it. uh, And that we take every opportunity. I mean, because Thresholds is so big, we have really strove, I don't know, striven, strived, whatever the past (laughs) tense of to strive is, to make sure that people have upward progression, that you can move from a case manager to a team leader, to a program director, to a vice president. and So many people at Thresholds have made that journey. Um, And And I think, you know, in supporting people on that journey, it's incumbent upon us to do that. I think it's also, you know, incredibly important to offer training, uh, both in person and now more virtual uh, for uh, folks internally. Um, But, you know, I'm also really proud at Thresholds and I was proud at the AIDS Foundation that we help people develop leadership skills so they can leave Thresholds and they can leave the AIDS Foundation. Uh, it saddens me when we lose good people, but we're also serving as a training ground to help people then go on to their next opportunity. I mean, I was on a Zoom call last night with somebody who's a deputy director of a not-for-profit now. And and she told me on the Zoom meeting, she said, just for your information, I worked at Thresholds a long time ago. And those five years were so formative to my leadership development and who I am today. I'm like, I'm, like, I'm sort of sad that you're not with us, but I am so happy that, that the institution provided that base for you to soar. So that to me is the biggest compliment that any leader can take credit for or enjoyment of is watching people soar internally and externally.
0: Absolutely. Totally agree with that. Okay, here's the last question. I am new to my organization, C-Suite, so I don't know the other execs very well but I've been noticing their lack of action around recent events surrounding George Floyd's death and subsequent protest. I also heard one person complaining about the peaceful protests that have been happening around the country, calling them in quotes, inconvenient. How can I start what I fear will be a very complex conversation? And I'm sure this is something happening in with staff around the country. And, and while people are not gathered in place, in some cases they are in one place, but, in most places, people are not in the same room. How do you have those conversations? How do you start those conversations?
2: It's so interesting, and I'll say you know, with my just my non YWCA leader hat on, but mostly what I've been recognizing is that um, a couple things, and this is where I get back to workplace. I'll, I'll quickly mention the statistic because, um, but there was a study done um, on people's social networks and. to to really understand how diverse they were. So it showed that 90% of of white people had networks that were also white, 80% of African-Americans had networks that were also African-American and 60% of Latinos have networks that are also Latino. The reason I say that is that because then people come to work and we mix all those folks up and then we, we we somewhat act surprised when they don't have an understanding of that particular type of issue so i say that because i do think it's important to meet people where they are and having these conversations and then also balancing your energy and where you want to focus on to create change you know could you confront them and have a conversation yes you could is that how you want to spend your time that's up to you and so where do you want to really make change and where are the what are the levers and the avenues you have available to make that change and i choose not to just argue with people a lot i choose to try to change in other ways because i do realize that i don't know how much energy i want to spend on some person that may be so far apart from where i believe that you know and there's some people that have energy for that i just don't and so i rather do the things that I'm doing at work every day <laughs> to, to create, to work on the systems, right? So I think you have to understand where people are and choose where you want to engage and how you want to exert your energy and effort, because you could waste a whole bunch of energy on people that just will never get it. And so I just think you have to make a choice.
0: I would agree. Yeah. And, I, and I think when we're doing our work, we, we too try to meet people where they are and bring them along. And to some degree, that's really what equity is about, right? We know that uh, equality, which we've often talked about, is not the end game. It's got to be equity. We have to provide opportunities and resources so that people can do their best because we don't all start at the same place, right? So, Mark, would you like to add anything to that?
1: Yeah, no, I I absolutely agree. I mean, you know, it's it's hard for me because, I mean, Thresholds is such a quote-unquote radical place. Everything we've been doing for 60 years is radical, right? Keeping people out of jail and keep getting people off the streets and getting people out of nursing homes that have been like locked up there for their whole adult life. I mean, like the work that we're doing is radical. And so I'm just excited that, that, that at our C-suite, there's a uh, excitement and a commitment to just even being more quote unquote radical and, and really pushing the boundaries uh, on justice, economic justice and racial justice uh, and, and justice for all. Um, you know, I'm also uh, to piggyback on both these points about meeting people where they're at, you know, I I think a lot about the harm reduction work that we have done that I've done my whole life and harm reduction is really meeting people where they're at, right. It's not telling people you have to be clean and sober in order for us to have a relationship. If you want to stay in housing, you have to say no to drugs today, you know, or, you know, and, and then of course in the AIDS world, you know, people negotiating safer sex didn't always mean that people had sex in exactly the way that some people wanted them, right? I mean, so um so harm reduction is a philosophy. And I think if we sort of employ sort of harm reduction principles and meeting people where they're at and listening, um it, it makes conversation and movement to another place possible. You know? And I also have to say, I don't know who this person is asking this really important and tough question, but you know, um, you also got to decide, are you in the institution that uh, best meets your values and is aligned with who you are and who you want to be and what you want the organization and society to be? And, and it's not always the case, you know, there's alignment is important. And that doesn't mean that I am against disparate voices, different and disparate voices make things more interesting. And you get to a better place when you actually listen to people that you don't agree with on both like far extremes. There's gotta be something magical in the middle there. Um, So um, yeah, but I think listening. Listening, I mean, to me, we didn't really talk about this in leadership, but but listening is like such an important part of being a good leader. You can't lead without listening to the people and the voices that are serving and the voices of those with lived experience, right? These are the voices that are important, the people living with serious mental illnesses, the men and women, black men and women who have been traumatized their entire lives by the police uh, and by institutions and by banks that would not give them loans. These are the voices that we need to listen to in order to be leaders, effective leaders. Mm
0: -hmm. Absolutely, well, I agree with all of that. And I think that um, you do have to, make some personal decisions about to your point is this the organization for you can we you know can we have a conversation I love having these kind of conversations but also understand that people come from very different perspectives and sometimes they're not they they don't have the wherewithal or the broader understanding of how to even engage in the conversation without it becoming um so it's right. something that we didn't, we didn't intend. And so I, I love having these kinds of conversations. I think we're gonna have more of them. We need to have them because at the end of the day, the conversation is the relationship, right? If you can't have a discussion with someone, you're not gonna be able to have a relationship with them. And um, we certainly see that in, in our work. To your point about listening, Mark, um, that, that's an exercise that we work into most of our, our um, racial equity and uh, DEI workshops because mm-hmm. we don't really hear each other mm-hmm. um there it is really an art and um you know we're moving we're moving all the time we're moving very fast so listening i just want to thank you so much for, ga- for gathering with us for being here with us on gathering ground um we have been talking with and continue to talk to for hours but we're going to end it here we've been talking with dory mcgorder from the metropolitan ywca of chicago and mark Ishog. Um, from Thresholds. Really enjoyed having you on Gathering Ground. And uh, thank you all for listening. I'm Mary Morton. Until next time. We are so pleased to let you know that you can now find Gathering Ground on iTunes, in addition to SoundCloud, Spotify, Google Podcast, Stitcher, Breaker, and Radio Public, and at GatheringGroundPodcast.com. I'm Mary Morton, and this has been another episode of Gathering Ground.